You're listening to audio from Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you'd like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. Amen. Well, if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, we're going to be looking at this morning. Big surprise there, Luke 24. If, you're, if you've been with us over the last couple months or years really, I guess, we've been walking through the book of Luke in different parts and we've been walking in the steps of Jesus all the way up to this day, the resurrection, Luke chapter 24, verse one. We've been coming there right there and everything's been leading us to the culmination of this point, it's the climax of the story. And so, so we've been literally verse by verse following Jesus and, and here we find ourselves in an empty tomb on, on Luke chapter 24. And so today, as we've looked at Thursday evening and, and uh, Friday morning and Friday afternoon and, and then we've gone through Saturday and now we come to today's message is entitled Sunday morning. This is Sunday morning. And, and I, I kind of talking about it in this sense, today we're gonna to be talking a little bit about this concept of how, how it was a surprise. It's a Sunday morning surprise. Uh, maybe that's just in my mind because last Sunday morning I had a kind of a surprise. We had baby born at 12.10 last uh, Sunday. Uh, so if you were here on Palm Sunday and I wasn't here, that's where I was. Um, and so we were very, very grateful, very thankful to have baby Judson born, but that surprise of, 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 of this baby being born and what's this all about? And uh, it was a, an exciting thing. It was something we were expecting. Isn't that what you say when you're pregnant? You're expecting. But when it comes, it's still a surprise. They're like, what do we do now? You know? And Jamie's water broke on Saturday evening, and I'm just like, you go from expecting, you know, this baby's coming, you know, you're all prepped and ready. And when it happens, you're like, what do we do now? Right? <laughs> uh, you know, and I'm just like grabbing bags, trucking kids, running around everywhere, you know? We're like, chicken with my head cut off. And I'm like, let's go, let's go, let's go, right? You, you, you're ready. And yet you're not. You, know? you expect this to happen, you expect it to come, uh, but it's still a surprise when it does. And for some of these disciples and the women that we're gonna read about in the story, they, they didn't even expect this to come, even though that they were told that this would happen, he would rise, they were surprised. And I think sometimes I'm gonna be likening that to us even in our own lives today, that sometimes we, we expect God to work, we expect surprises to, to come in a sense, right? We expect that God will and can do amazing things, but we're still surprised when he does, right? Or we're still surprised when God works in unexpected ways like he does in the resurrection. We're still surprised at that, and yet as we learn about the character of God, as we learn and grow in relationship with who God is, we learn that this is how he works. This is who he is. This is the God we serve. He's a God of the resurrection. So that's gonna be kind of the theme and the tone of today as we walk through this passage and as we examine in a broader detail uh, the effects and the results of the, of the resurrection for us today. That this is, yes, a historical event, verifiable eyewitness accounts. It is historically accurate and yet it is not just separated from us today in 2021. It is so much alive in us as we breathe in his life today. And so that is what is so important that this event is it, we find that our lives are never the same, never the same. And so this is the first day of the week, as it says in Luke chapter 24, verse one. It's the first day of the week. This is early dawn, early in the morning. This is Saturday's gone by, the day in between, and Friday they've just walked through this terrible, terrible day. And they come, Luke chapter 24, verse one, let's read. It says, but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. Remember, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus take the body of Jesus 
They bury him in a tomb that's been prepared and they provide spices and, and the women are also seeking to add their kind of aspect of worship and preparing the body as well. So they're going to the tomb on Sunday morning, not expecting what they find. Surprised, right? Verse two says, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but they went in and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bound their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. And then we all say, he is risen indeed, right? He is, right? Remember how he told you, they say. While he was still in Galilee, that the son of man, the son of man, the the, the perfect representation for mankind, the new Adam that would take our place as the old Adam has presented sin and death into the world, the new Adam, the son of man, the king, the God, the divinity, the incarnation, this amazing mystery will be our representation and take on and give us righteousness in place of death, right? So this, the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and he w- will be crucified on the third day, rise, like the, the angel was like, don't you remember this? Verse eight, and they remembered his words. They're like, oh yeah, they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11, meaning Judas was not here at present, and uh, to the 11 and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed like an idle tale and they did not believe them. I love this verse. But Peter, right? But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves and he went home marveling at what happened. I'm just gonna pray again really quick. God, I just pray you would help us to see this text, see the truth from this word and help us to go home this morning marveling at what we have heard and what we believe. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the surprise of Sunday morning. They didn't see it coming, right? All of a sudden, this, this change, this event, this, this startling event, this empty tomb. This is kind of the early dawn, the changeover from darkness into light, both physically in the day and metaphorically and spiritually as we think of it. For in Malachi 4.2, it says, but for you who fear my name, the sun, S-U-N, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out leaping, <laughs> leaping, like jumping for joy, like calves from the stall. This picture of the, the darkness that the light breaks through, the sunlight, the dawn, the rising of the sun that rises to bring light to all the world, the light of the world that comes, but he comes with healing in his wings, with change, with victory, with life. He conquers death by death and resurrection. Today we focus on the resurrection as it is the pinnacle of all that God has been doing. We can't stop at the cross. The cross is necessary, yes, but it leads us to the empty tomb. We don't end there at Golgotha. We end here in the garden tomb. And so we find this beautiful dawning of time, this dawning of the savior of the world. The light has come up and the women come to the tomb. And they find something very curious. They're surprised. They're, as the word says, perplexed. You ever been perplexed? 
You're seeing something, but you don't get it, right? You're looking at it, but you do not understand. Like me with math, right? As a kid in high school, teacher, I'm looking at it, but I don't get it, right? Word problems, right? We won't go in there. I don't even know if they teach those anymore. They probably shouldn't, but uh, anyways, uh, right? It's perplexing. It's confusing. I don't understand. I'm looking at it, but I don't get what is going on. This is perplexing. I don't even know what to think about this. I'm stunned, you could say. They're stunned. They're blown away. What do I think? What what do I do? And so the reaction is that they encounter two men in dazzling apparel. And as they encounter them, they find that that their response to what has occurred, the perplexing that question in front of them, and these two men with dazzling apparel, their response is the same as any one of you and me would be in, and that response is fear. They're perplexed, then they're fearful. As anybody who encounters an angel is, they respond by falling on their faces to the ground and they say to them, they are fearful, they say. They are frightened and they bow their faces to the ground. They're perplexed. And they say, the men come to them, yes, why do you seek the living among the dead? What what are you doing here? And then he says, he's not here, he's risen. But then they ask him a question. Uh, You are perplexed, clearly, right? You're fearful, do not be afraid. But, But let me remind you, do you not remember? He speaks into the remembrance. Do you not remember what Jesus has already told you? Do you not remember as he was in Galilee, if you were to turn over to Luke 9, you can if you'd like, you can find when Jesus showed and preached and taught the exact detailed account of what would happen, that he would be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees, he would be um, scourged and he would be mocked and he would be delivered over, crucified, and then on the third day he would rise again. He already told them, he's told them this three times and what's so interesting as As we are, we need to be reminded over and over and what happens is that they remember. I love that, they remember. Oh yeah, have you ever had those jaw drop kind of times, you know, boom, you open something, you find it, I can't believe that. I I remember now, right? And and there's just a light bulb goes on, right? And and so they, they remember how he told you, right? They remembered his words. How beautiful of a simplistic statement is that? They remembered his words words and how often is that we come together and gather in church I preach sometimes the same things over and over every week it doesn't change up much right the same gospel message in some way shape or form right and we often need to remember his words remember his word for us today is that not just the the simple lesson we can draw And yet, as I want us to notice today that they did not expect this to come. They were surprised at this resurrection. Even the disciples, as we are quick to learn, weren't expecting this. Ironically, the people who were expecting this were some of the leaders who presented Roman guards to be present there because they heard that this guy would try to rise from the dead and they didn't want the disciples trying to steal the body. For some reason, they remembered it, but the disciples did not. They were living in fear They certainly maybe weren't really actually thinking Jesus was gonna rise bodily from the dead in three days without the end of the world that was going to come, but rather that the world would seem to be largely unchanged except for the fact that Jesus has conquered the the grave and that the world would never be the same. And so as the women run back to tell the 11, they come running back to tell them all these things. I imagine it's just so interesting which one is speaking. They're probably all talking on top of each other and trying to say, and the disciples like, would you slow down? Slow down, just one person talking at a time, okay? You, Mary, you tell me what happened, right? 
And then she gives her account and the others give their account and, they, and the, the disciples are like, oh my word, this is, you guys, you guys are crazy. It's an idle tale. It's an old wives' tale, they say, right? It's a bunch of women with too much grief and too little sleep, they say, right? They, they can't possibly be telling the truth. They, and, and just a side note, this is not something you put into a story if you're trying to fabricate a resurrection, right? If this story is fabricated hundreds of years later and this is a falsified account and Jesus never rose from the dead but you're just trying to fake it in history, this is not the kind of way you lay out some fabricated story. First of all, you don't have women be your primary eyewitness accounts, the first people to see because in a court of law and during that time, women were not uh, viewed as respectable witnesses in a court of law. They couldn't be trusted. This, you know, this, so you wouldn't have them be the first people. You wouldn't have Mary Magdalene be the first woman who sees Jesus alive. And then you wouldn't have the 11 who are supposed to be the ones who actually believe this stuff uh, totally deny it and not believe it, right? And so, so it's so fascinating. It's just the way it's detailed. It's just very matter of fact. This is what happened. Joanna, Mary, the others, they, they go and they tell him and the disciples are like, look, this is an idle tale and they did not believe them. And as it mentions, before we get to Peter, it mentions Mary Magdalene. If you were to turn over to John chapter 20, you can look at John chapter 20 verse 11 and it talks about how, how Mary and Jesus have this encounter. Jesus appears to Mary in the garden and remember she thinks he's the gardener. And it's, just, it's one of the most intimate, beautiful um, stories of Jesus' compassion for Mary. I just love the way that, that it's viewed that she's standing out there still perplexed about what has happened. She's there, stood weeping outside the tomb. She, she's weeping in verse 12 and she saw two angels sitting there and, and, and they, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? I, first of all, that's probably not the greatest question to ask a woman, why, why are you crying, you know? <laughs> you don't always get the best response to that. I just know firsthand. Um, so, uh, women, why are you weeping? She said to her, they have taken away my Lord. She said, I don't know where they put him. Now having this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know what, that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? What a beautiful question. Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him. Where's my Lord? I will take him away. Please just tell me. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, Rabboni, which means teacher, rabbi, rabbi. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet descended to the Father. This beautiful picture, is this not just a beautiful description of Jesus' compassion for mankind? That when we do not understand, when we are confused, when we are emotional, he does not let us just kind of get our stuff together to finally understand it and ascend to his greatness. He comes down to us and he meets us where we are at and he teaches us and he shows us and he hugs us and he calls us by our name. It's a beautiful picture of many of yours, your, your experience that you've had with Jesus, that you know that's exactly how he operates. He comes and meets you and teaches you and he shows you himself. This is a beautiful picture there with Mary Magdalene, one of the first people here to, be, to receive an eyewitness account, to see Jesus alive as the risen savior. The women here are detailed as the first evangelists, you could say, of the gospel. Jesus employs these women to go out and spread the gospel of the good news, right? It's, it's incredible. It's powerful. And Jesus comforts her in her confusion. And so we go back in, in Luke chapter 24 and verse 12 at the end there. It, it's this idea that everyone's confused and everyone's talking, telling idle tales as the disciples are saying, but Peter, 
Is that not the best verse ever, right? We, Peter often gets a bad rap, right, doesn't he? We often kind of, well, Peter, he's the guy who denies. He's the guy always talking, right? But he's the leader. He's the one often willing to take action. And many of you are just like Peter. You know what it's like. Everybody's talking, but like, can we just get something done around here, <laughs> right? And Peter's like, would you guys stop talking? Let's go, right? And everyone else is like, well, we just figure it out. And he's like, boom, he's out of the door, right? I just love the, the visual picture of Peter, for many of us are just like him, and, and many of you are, are sticking your foot in your mouth more often than not, right? And that's Peter. We all identify with him, but he needs proof. He needs to see for himself, like Thomas. Many of us are like Thomas, too. Thomas, show me. I want to see his hands. You guys are all talking about this thing. You were there, but, but let me see, Right? Jesus doesn't say scoff at that. No, he opened the tomb, not so Jesus could get out, but so witnesses could get in, right? And so we could see. He does not deny that you have doubts. He knows you're gonna have doubts, but he wants to show you if you're willing to let him, let, let him show you. So Peter rose and he ran to the tomb. It's always my favorite part. In John, he gives a more detailed account of Peter and John racing, like grown men, like running and racing against one another. And John is very quick to detail for you that he was the one who arrived first, right? But he also is quick to say that John is the one who waited outside the tomb and Peter goes zoom right through into the tomb and checks and stoops in and looks in, right? So talk is cheap and so Peter's not a man of talk. He, he wants action and uh, he, wa- he runs in and he goes and and he, he, he's wondering, what, and I just always often wonder, what, what is it that they were expecting to find, right? When they're running on that way, are they believing the women? Are they hopeful or are they fearful? I think I would say it's probably a mixture of both because it says they did not believe that he has been risen from the dead until they arrived. In some of the other accounts, it details that in a little greater detail. But here we see in verse 12, Peter rose, got up, he ran to the tomb, sprinted there, stooping and looking in, He saw the linen clothes by themselves all folded neatly, right? Even Jesus makes his bed, right, kids? And he went home marveling at what had happened. He marveled. Like, I I can't, I I don't even know what, I'm I'm speechless, right? Have you ever been that way? I think that's what Peter, for the first time in his entire life, was speechless, right? And so he he runs to the tomb and and he sees it. He, He ran. He saw. He entered. He believed. He went home marveled and worshipful. I think that is so often just the process that you and I go through in life. We encounter God in his word, among his people in the church, with one another in fellowship, and we too can experience, if you would, this encounter with the living God through the scripture that there are times that I read and I'm just, I see, I run to the scripture, I need the help that I need and I see and I believe and I marvel. And I would hope that that is a, the aim for every time we gather as a church, Lord, that we would come into his presence, we would see, we would believe, and we would marvel, right? We would marvel. And I, I do think, though, often in my heart that, the, that in John 20, 29, it also says that Jesus said to them, have you believed just because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed and happy are you who have not been able to go into the tomb, who have not seen a a literal Jesus risen in front of them. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. For those of us, we are blessed in that faith. And so I think about us. I think about us for a moment as we as we, as we think about this process, the storyline, our, our, what is our response to the risen Jesus? What is our response to the resurrection? Is, is it that you sit here today and view this as an idle tale? 
This guy on the stage is talking to me about something that's an old wives' tale and it's convenient and it's quaint, it's nice. Or is it something that you need to see for yourself? Now, I don't shame you in that in any way. I think that's something we can pray to God. Show me for, I, I don't believe the disciples prayed it. I believe, but help my unbelief. Like, Lord, help me. Show me. Make it clear I'm open and humble, humbling myself before you. Jesus isn't hiding from you. I think we get that sense about God. That it's like this Pandora's box that we have to somehow find this magical way to unlock. It's not like God is hiding and avoiding you. He is there waiting for you. His hand is open for you. The Bible says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come, come to me, all you who are weary. Is that you every now and then? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I, Jesus, will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, put it on. It will feel like an upside down way of coming into submission and freedom by putting a yoke on, but he says it's the best place you can possibly be. Take my yoke and learn from me because I'm lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. God isn't hiding from you. He wants to be found. But the question, are you willing to lose yourself in order to find the creator God and your savior, Jesus Christ? Are we willing to run to the tomb and look silly as we do, wanting to see if it is actually empty as others say it is? Are we willing to, to upset the current narrative and lifestyle in which we're choosing to live? Is, is that something we're willing to upset? Are we willing to get out and change? Are we willing to see that, that maybe potentially this belief in Jesus Christ might alter my life, and it will? Jesus says, take up my cross and follow me. It will change your life forever. You will put on a yoke, but you will be free. You will, be, you, will, you will find rest for your weary soul that's wandering and lurking and searching. It'll change your life forever. God doesn't leave you alone without proof or without witnesses or without credibility. He understands that you doubt. He understands you have these thinking. He wants to show you who he is. And he's hoping that you will come looking for him. The Bible says, seek and you will find Knock and the door will be opened. Come to me, those of you who are weary and burdened. Come and witness the risen Lord Jesus Christ for yourself. Because that's what we're gonna be doing next week and the week after. We're gonna be looking at some of the passages in Luke 24 where it doesn't just end there, but rather Jesus appears and shows himself and appears to hundreds of people and to others individually on the road to Emmaus and the disciples themselves and he, and he shows them for themselves that he is alive, he is bodily raised from the dead. And so with that kind of encapsulation of understanding of what's happening there in Luke 24, I want us to kind of revisit the question that the angels specifically ask. It's a question we're probably familiar with if you grew up in church, you've, you've heard the question on Easter most often, but why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen in my way, I colloquially kind of summarize it in a sense like, what were you expecting to find here? <laughs> what were you expecting? Was, what is it that you expected to discover here? What is it that you were hoping to find, right? When you go to a graveyard, you expect to find stones and graves. 
But when you go to a hospital, you expect to find sick people. When you go to a nursing home, you expect to find the elderly. When you go to a kindergarten classroom, you expect to find energetic kids. When you go to a soccer match, you expect to find people playing soccer. When you go to a funeral home, you expect to find caskets. When you go to Chick-fil-A, I expect to find my spicy chicken sandwich, right? I expect, right? Go to McDonald's and I don't ask for a steak or seafood, right? Who in their right mind asks for that, right? Uh, I guess people who order that fish thing. I've, I've heard people do that. I don't know who does, but right? Um, and, I, and I go to a K-5 classroom. I, I don't go there looking for the elderly in a nursing home. I, I expect to find what I'm expecting to find. It's almost a question, why do you seek the living among the Well, I'm here because a few days earlier, Jesus was buried right here. That's why I'm here, duh. What are you expecting to find? Why, why are you looking for him here? Why, why do you seek the living among the dead? In a sense, the angels are telling them, you're in the wrong place. You're in the wrong place. What a true statement that is. You're looking for him in the wrong place. Can we apply that to ourselves just briefly for a moment? That I think we often do that, maybe more often than not. Aren't we just like that? Looking for life in all the wrong places. Almost sounds like a song. <laughs> We often look for the things that aren't made to give us life as frustrated that we're expecting them to give us life, but they don't end up giving us life. They weren't ever meant to do that. We're looking for these things in this world to satisfy our cravings, and when they don't satisfy our cravings, we're like, is that it? Isn't there something more? I I thought there was more to life than this. And Jesus has been saying all along, you're looking for the, in the tombs, for life, for the living. I'm not there. I'm not there. We look among the tombs for life, the life that isn't there, it's, it's living, not dead. Isn't this how it is with us? We, we look for life, satisfaction, for the things that are created to be the creator, the, the, the things that need saving to be our savior. We look for all the wrong places for the source of life outside of Jesus Christ himself and he tells you I am the way, the resurrection and the life. The way, the truth and the life. Think about the reasoning with me for a second, but in this sense of what the question is asking as we try to unpack this. That also the reason is is why they were surprised and why they were perplexed is almost so obvious we miss it. They're confused because this is not the way this is supposed to happen. Why are you looking for life among the dead? Like, don't you see? Life has conquered death. Light has broke into the darkness. John 1, 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. That's what Easter's all about. Oh, sure, Jesus was here, but he's not here anymore. He's done with death. He's over the grave. It's defeated. Game's over. You missed it, right? Now received in the celebration. See, the reasoning is perplexing to us as human beings. The reasoning is perplexing to us outside of faith in Jesus Christ, but the thinking is surprising because it reverses our expectations of the most reliable thing we've ever known. You're born, then you die. There ain't anything more reliable than that outside of Jesus Christ, outside of Easter morning. It's the most thing I can guarantee you, right? The most thing, the the thing I can most guarantee, the resurrection of the Son of Man changes everything. Yes, we still experience these things in life, but it's meant to give us hope because of the resurrection, gives us hope that when we experience the normal things of life, that that people live and they die, that when we experience Jesus Christ, it overturns and reverses that narrative completely. You know, I went through a really hard year last year, many of you did as well, a tough year, right? 
Dad died in June, and yet shortly after that, we found out we were pregnant with a baby boy, our first baby boy. It was very exciting for us, the first boy on our side of the family. And so this unique comparison of this, this death and life, and yet any time you've experienced death, you know that this is, it's not easy, any death experience. And there's something about death that has this, this aversion inside of us in the core of who we are that this is not supposed to be. In fact, a few days ago, um, my girls and I were outside playing when it was actually warm in the spring, you know? Do you remember that? A few days ago. Uh, it was really nice outside. We were outside playing, and um, the neighbor's uh, dog comes running up the road, and my girls love animals, and so they come running over to the dog. It's a, a yellow lab, and uh, the dog will occasionally uh, come running up the road to us. Just a few feet down the road is, is their dog, and we think nothing of it. Our, our wonderful neighbors often say, well, don't let the dog bother you, and I'm like, oh, believe me, it's not bothering us. My girls love your dog. And so we were playing with it, but we were playing for a little while, and I said, you know, it's probably time we get the dog back to its owners. You know, that's pretty important. I was like, I don't want the dog to be up here too long and them to be worrying about, about her. So, so we started walking down our dirt road there in High Ridge in Dublin. We were walking down the dirt road to return the dog, and the dog's following us. And then the dog comes running alongside me and, and takes a few uh, trots right in front of me down the dirt road and then falls over on its face. Just in the middle of the road, my girls are right behind me and the dog is probably from me to the communion table and, and just falls over right there and I just was like, whoa, what happened? And I asked the girl, did you, did you see that? It just, I thought it tripped on something or not and I run over and I can feel the dog, its heart kind of slowing and then all of a sudden the dog just breathes out this breath and I'm like, I'm touching the dog at that point and it's a dog, right? I mean, we, many of you would say, well, it's just a dog, but dogs are members of a family. We know what that's like to have something. But the concept here, you know, the dog's not made in the image of God, whatever, but you can say that in, in this sense that we, when we experience death in a manner that's so startling and so striking that there's life and there's death. There's breath and the breath is gone. There's a sense of reality that we all sense and feel within us. My girls are right there and I run down with the girls to our neighbor's house and tell us, your dog has just fell over and so we run over and eventually I send my girls home and we determine the dog had just passed away, had a heart attack right there in the middle of the road right in front of me. And it was a wonderful moment for me to teach my little girls even about death and life. Even about to teach them that this is what happens apart from Jesus Christ. And without him, we are all destined for that same destination. And yet with Jesus, with the resurrection, because of Easter morning, everything changes. And it needs to change because we all sense, we all feel that isn't okay. There's something deathly wrong with us. Our hearts, our minds, and our bodies, we have a natural aversion for death. It isn't normal. It's, it's not the way things are supposed to be. We get this. We understand this. Whether even if you believe in God or not, you no doubt believe in murder Murder's not right. We believe there's a sense of taking someone else's life that is somehow across uh, the board wrong. We're afraid of death. This is normal for us. Every human being feels it inside of them. There's got to be something more to life than just this. It's not good. This isn't the way things are supposed to be. And you see, God understands this. He sympathizes with this. For this is not the way things are intended to be. In fact, that's why he has come. Because he has come to conquer death and give life. He has come to break this determined cycle of fruitless existence of life and death without hope. He has come to inject hope into our lives and to give us eternal life. This is the cycle that we all experience. 
the most predictable thing known to mankind outside of taxes <laughs> is death, right? We, we know that, we get that, we, we try to avoid it, we, try, we, we don't like thinking about it, but then all of a sudden, in this expectation of the oncoming train of death, the end as it is, it is near, uh, that all of a sudden, it's surprising because we realize for just a moment that this isn't all there is. There's actually more. There's, there's a happy ending. Jesus says in John eleven twenty five 25, before he resurrects Lazarus from the dead, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever comes to me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The empty tomb in Luke 24 changes everything. It reverses everything. It's a change of direction, it's a misdirection, it's a reverse play in football where you're running to one side of the field and you hand the ball off and the player runs to the opposite side of the field. It's surprising, everybody's going one direction and all of a sudden somebody's going the opposite direction. It's a reversal, it's a misdirection, it's a great reversal. Tim Keller writes about this in his book. His book, I think it is called uh, Hope in Times of Fear. He says, this is the great reversal, the resurrection. It is the way Jesus works. He says, the way up is down that the way of strength is through weakness and God has a plan and walks with us in the midst of our suffering, our fragility and our helplessness and he promises victory over it all through his son Jesus Christ and our Lord and Savior. This great reversal. Through death comes life. Through weakness comes strength. This is the upside down kingdom of God. Uh, Through poverty comes great inheritance. Through humility comes exaltation. Through repentance comes forgiveness. Through giving one receives. Through being lost you found yourself found. This is the way of Jesus, the way of the empty tomb. Through the cross comes the empty grave. Tim Keller gives descriptions of this as well. If you look throughout the Bible, we learn about the character of God. In the Old Testament, the the firstborn son was traditionally and culturally what was accepted. The firstborn son receives the inheritance. He's the valued member. He's the leader of the family. It's all passed down to him. It's called primogeniture. It's passed down to the firstborn son, but God flips that entire narrative on itself constantly throughout the Old Testament. He works in ways that are unexpected, that people do not expect. And Tim Keller says it's Abel over Cain in the Bible, is it not? It's an Isaac over Ishmael, it's Jacob over Esau, it's Joseph and Judah, youngers, over Reuben, Ephraim, and Manasseh. It's even Moses, who's younger than Aaron. It's David, the youngest of all, and the short one of the family, over all his older brothers. It's God displaying his power through weakness, through the supposed weakness of mankind, and the supposed foolishness of God, right? He even talks about how women are included in this narrative, how, how God works through women, which, which this aspect that we wouldn't expect if the culture is saying this, that God works through the spent and aged Sarah to bring Isaac. He works through the plain Leah over the beautiful Rachel, with Hannah over Samson's mother, barren women. God chooses to work through Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, each an outsider of their standards of time. Tamar tricked her father-in-law into a sexual encounter. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth, a pagan despised race of people. Bathsheba was the wife of a man forced into adulterous affair with King David. Yet they're all in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The salvation of the world comes through their line. God takes the people who who the world and the culture consigns to the margins and values as unimportant and he brings them to the center. For in 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance but God looks on the heart. 
What we see as outward appearances and circumstances, we don't see all that God is doing and planning and working behind the scenes to bring life. The the, the resurrection doesn't just affect as a historical event, but every event now that you face in your life, you know that you serve a God of the resurrection. You serve a God who works like that, who sees your heart, not the outward. Good Friday sure looks bad. Seems like death has won. Hopelessness might be the only response and fear, but, but all along, we see God, true to his word, raises Jesus from the dead. You see, so often in our lives, it's like this. Throughout the Bible, you can apply it in the sense that we see a red sea, right? God sees dry ground. We see giant walls. God sees them crumbling down. We see Joseph's imprisonment. God sees a rescue plan. We see Gideon's 300 measly little group of men. God sees a victory. We see giants. God sees the promised land. We see David's youth and an experience. God sees a future king. See, I see my weaknesses. God sees his strength. We see Good Friday. God sees Easter morning. Don't you let your outward circumstances destroy your faith. For God works in surprising ways, in unexpected ways, in miraculous ways that you never saw coming. He's a God who works amazing, surprising, powerful things. It is God who changes these things, is it not? It is this kind of God that we serve. The resurrection changes that expectation that we can clap, that we can celebrate, right? That's what the resurrection does. It fills my lack of expectation for any situation with faith and hope. It's not that I demand God into the way I expect things to be, but rather that I believe that he can work things in whatever way he wants them to be, and I trust him no matter what because Easter is a surprise. It surprises me every year, whether we meet it with celebration or Easter comes in other ways for us when, when we're in this over this tragedy of life, God's grace comes surging in and overturns our tragedies and turns them into triumphs. He turns our weaknesses into strengths. This is the way God works. And he might even, I dare say it, he might even turn our ease and comfort and turn them into hardship and trials to teach us something about himself and ourselves that we never thought possible before in our comfort. It's through those trials and temptations that he can actually make you stronger than you were before. And so the hard part is trusting him through it all. God works strength from our weaknesses. He works this way. It is in the cross that we're willing to take up that he brings you to Easter morning. Hope for the future now makes anything possible. And it should change the way we see everything. The way we look at people who are that lost cause. No, no, no. God can work amazing miracles in their lives. It should change the way we look at life, the circumstances we face, and I wanna challenge you, uh, kinda as we bring this to a close, what is it that, we, that you're facing? What is it that you're walking through? What is it that seems impossible? What is it this aspect that you're like, why would God let said thing happen? I don't always know the answer to that, but I do know the God who's with you through it. That's the more important thing. I know my God was died on a cross, but I know he rose from the dead, and I know he is alive. So the fact that Jesus is alive means something for me today, because when I die physically on this earth, I will live. That's our, our faith, that like, you can't touch that, 
right? Isn't that, isn't that the confidence that we have, the, the hope that we have, that our expectation for the fruitlessness of this endeavor that we face, that the fruitlessness of whatever we're facing, that it's not fruitless, that it means something, that there's eternal significance for every human being in this place, eternal significance because of Sunday morning, because of the surprising resurrection. I read this passage a few weeks ago and I'm gonna read it again. In Romans chapter six, we're gonna close with this passage. Romans six, I'm gonna just read verses three through 10. I don't know if you've ever preached or something, you often think of, how do I conclude? And I often find concluding is best by reading God's word. (laughs) Romans six, as it kind of summarizes so much of what we're talking about, this aspect of being buried with Christ, taking on his death, but it doesn't end there, because we rise to walk in newness of life. It is who we are today that we are living and alive because the spirit of God lives within us today and we walk in this truth. Romans six, verse three says, do you not know that all who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried with him by baptism into death. All right, everybody go home. We're all buried. Is that, is that oh, it goes on. We're buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, shocker, surprise, we too might walk in newness of life. <laughs> for, and I love this verse, verse five, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And I think so often, even as myself, I can get to the cross and I want you to dwell on the cross as we should, and I forget, or maybe I just undervalue or I ev- underemphasize the resurrection. Do you find yourself there? I do. That I, I like to focus on the cross, the death like his, right? I can. But we will be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self, verse 6, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all and the life he lives, he lives to God. So you, people, must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I'm gonna pray before we come to the table for communion. Father, we thank you and we praise you for this good truth, for this life-altering truth. We pray knowing, God, that you are a God who works amazing things that we never could have expected. God, if, if we would have planned this, we could never have planned it. For God, you are an amazing, powerful God. We trust you today. We give you our, our, our faith and our trust and everything, God, we place it into your hands. Today, God, as we come before your table, I ask that we would have a renewed understanding of, of the truth of the table, of the body that was given for us on the cross, the blood that was shed for us on the cross. Lord, help us to recognize the basic gospel that you have died in accordance with the scriptures, that you were buried and you rose again according to the scriptures. Lord, we believe in that today and we come together as one happy family around one giant table partaking of one meal together under one baptism, one faith, and one Lord. We come today on Easter, God, and celebrate what you've done for us. Lord, we don't deserve it, but we give it back to you with all the glory that we know how. In Jesus' name, 
Amen.